0: Lifestyle is medicine when done right, especially food choices, and has the potential to eliminate 80% of chronic disease. Our mission is to be the trusted signal of truth based on the weight of the evidence that rises above the deafening noise of misinformation.
1: We offer you a no-nonsense and enjoyable approach to the fundamentals of nutrition and wellness. Our goal is to give you simple and actionable strategies so you can make smart, health-promoting decisions every day. Welcome to the True Health Revealed podcast. I am registered dietitian nutritionist, Kathleen Zellman, and today we're going to talk about raising healthy kids. It is readily acknowledged that there's no other period of life when nutrition is more important than the first thousand days. That's roughly pregnancy to two years old. It's a critical window for human growth and development, the brain, the body, the immune system and laying the groundwork for a lifelong health. So you wanna give your baby a healthy start. Many of our children are overweight or obese, and we wanna figure out how is it that we can get them on a good start and also make sure that we're feeding them all the right nutrients. So today we dive into recommendations for raising healthy eaters from the first 1,000 days to preventing obesity to stomach aches and allergies with my friend and guest, Dr. Stan Cohen who is a pediatric gastroenterologist and did his nutrition and fellowship at Harvard and Mass General. He's a rock star. He's an expert. He's been recognized as a leader internationally. He speaks across the globe. And in Georgia, he chaired the Nutrition Committee for the American Academy of Pediatrics. And here in Atlanta, where he continues to practice, he created the Center for Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. He is the author of Healthy Babies, Happy Kids, A Common Sense Guide to Nutrition for Growing Years, and What to Feed Your Baby, Cost-Conscious Nutrition for Your Infant, and I'm not done yet. He also started the website Nutrition for Kids, that's the numerical four, a consumer-friendly but medically curated website that is loaded with all kinds of health, feeding, and nutrition information, and where I also serve on his board of directors. He's a parent, a grandparent, an amazing art collector, and uh, Stan, I didn't know you were a published poet. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome to the podcast.
0: It's a pleasure. And Kathleen, I'm always pleased to talk with you and so privileged to see all the wonderful things you've done out there. It's, oh, it's thank great. you so
1: much. I appreciate that. All right, let's I want to start with childhood obesity, overweight or obesity, because the numbers, they're not getting better. You know, according to the CDC, there's, you know, even in the age groups of two to five, we have numbers that are striking, like 13 percent of all kids age two to five and 19 percent of children and adolescents. So we need to we need to change the way we're feeding our kids and, and leading our kids so that they're not they're not saddled with the consequences of being overweight or obese. So let's start there and how how do you handle kids in your practice that are overweight? My first question and then how we can start them off on the right foot in those first 1000 days.
0: So that's an excellent set of questions. One of the things I think most people have to understand is that those numbers that you quote of 18 and a half to 19% of kids being obese as teenagers continues on into adulthood. And it's not that they just have obesity. It's that 70% of the kids stay that way through adulthood and put themselves at risk for increased diabetes, increased hypertension or high blood pressure, and increased heart disease at an early age. So that's Mm -hmm. what we're really looking at. So when I'm thinking about treating a child or taking care of them, I'm not just thinking of taking care of them at that moment, but trying to think about their future. And so therefore, it gives me much more relevance as I speak to them and try to get them to understand. The problem is, is it's so far off that it's hard for them to connect those dots sometimes. Mm -hmm. So a lot of time, it's really spending the time just getting them to understand the importance of what we're doing.
1: Yeah, I hear you.
0: And the ways to do that are really to focus on their diet and their exercise. It's not just diet alone. It's not just, you know, don't eat this, eat that. It's also lessen the portion control, or rather, give them portion control and lessen the amount that they eat. So there's a couple ways to do that. One is the guidance has always been from the USDA is. Forming a healthy plate. So the healthy plate concept is one that's really meaningful because you can talk about the fact that someone should have half of their plate as fruits and vegetables with the other part proteins and some carbohydrates as well. But when I tell the kids, if you're still hungry at the end of that time, Don't go back for more of the carbs or the protein. I want you to eat more of your vegetables and your fruit. That's the way to do it.
1: That's excellent
0: advice. The other part of it is don't have anything to drink until after you eat so that when kids who are needing to gain weight and do well, we want to make sure that they're eating the good, healthy things first and not just filling up on their fluids and making sure that those fluids aren't full of sugar. So we don't want them to have sugar-sweetened beverages. Most people don't even realize that when they're giving their kids juice, that juice has just as much sugar as a soda. And that is what's really astounding is that people are still giving their kids so much juice because they think it's healthier. The fruit's he- healthy because it contains all sorts of other fiber and nutrients, whereas the juice has so much sugar that it makes it less healthy.
1: Although the American Academy of Pediatrics definitely recommends whole fruits over juice, but if you are going to do juice, limit the quantity and make sure it's a hundred percent juice, not sweetened, not juice beverages. So you really have to look at the label. That's correct. Well, uh, i love i love that you know they it's the same thing we say all the time too eat more fruits and vegetables it's really it's they're so loaded with fiber and nutrients and phytochemicals and it, they contain all the good stuff so if we could get get your kids to eat more fruits and vegetables that's what's really going to help how about at that zero to or b to 24 as it's referred to um during that phase can you help like make your child not not want those sweetened beverages and enjoy more fruits and vegetables?
0: The answer is yes. Yay! the, The answer is yes, definitely yes. Let me tell you there's some secrets here. And there shouldn't be secrets. They should be known by everybody. One of the ways that I often talk about it is a child's fist size. A child's fist size represents a portion size. And I usually go with my mantra of five-fifths of fruits and vegetables every day. And to get parents and kids to understand that, I ask them if they brush their teeth every day. And they go, yes. And I say, well, why? And I say, they usually come back, well, to keep my teeth clean, and and sometimes they'll say, healthy. And I remind them, that they're not doing that because they like to brush their teeth, but they have been drilled into their heads that this is important to keep their teeth healthy. And so I say what we're trying to do is keep your body healthy and particularly your intestines healthy with all those fruits and vegetables. I remind them that I don't tell them to like their fruits and vegetables – I tell them to eat their fruits and vegetables.
1: But if they're prepared right, they're, they're delicious. I mean, they're we, we talk about it with my little grandchildren, and, and you've met them. Um, we call it nature's candy. So That's those grapes, great. you know, we put them in the freezer sometimes or bananas. Sometimes fruit, when it's cold, it kind of reminds them of ice cream. But when they they have their choice of fruits or vegetables, so fruits are a little easier when they're younger, but still they're they're loaded with those nutrients.
0: Let me talk about the fact that kids, when they're about three years of age, their favorite food, carrots. Hmm. And one of the reasons is they do taste like candy. They are sweet. One of the other ways that I wanted to mention about young infants is I introduce vegetables before they start on fruits. Mm-hmm. As infants. And that's going to that early infancy time, trying to get them to get that taste of vegetables first, because we don't want them getting that sugary f- fruit taste and then not wanting their vegetables. And what's interesting is that I also tell them, or rather, I tell their parents, that um, it. You can't just say that they're turning their head away when they taste their first bite of something. It actually takes more than 10 tastes, sometimes as many as 15, to get used to a new food. So if they get used to it, they'll tend to like it. And if they get used to their vegetables and we tell them how important it is, they sometimes will like them as well. So it's important to start in that early, early age group and say, let's start now so that you'll like these. And it's also important that the parents don't cue their children that they may not like that vegetable because they didn't grow up with it the way that their children should.
1: Yeah, great, great advice. And, and I think also the way you prepare it, like those carrots. We buy the baby carrots, but they're too hard for a lot of the kids. So just a little uh, microwaving softens them so that they're a little bit more chewable. Or you want to go to the next stage. When you roast vegetables, they caramelize and they get that yumminess that, you know, sometimes makes it easier for kids. So also, Stan, talk about how good vegetables and fruits are for your gut health.
0: So let me continue. One more thought about The vegetables. Okay. When we're introducing them to children, particularly infants, I remind parents that if they can mush them with their own fingers, once the children are sitting upright and have good head control and are learning to chew, the children can chew those vegetables or actually gum it to death as long as they are (laughs) soft enough for the parents to mush them.
1: Okay, the schmush factor. Good. I like that.
0: I like
1: that. You know, parents are reading a lot about gut health and the microbiome. And I asked my daughter-in-law what questions she had for you today. And she said, you know, I give my kids all this processed food. You know, how am I affecting their gut health? And so there's a lot of concern about what should be in the diet to promote gut health and, and the relationship of gut health and bio-brain access, and, um, and healthy growth. So your, your opinions about gut health and what to do to try to foster it.
0: So one of the ways that people think about this a lot is giving their kids probiotics. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is is that probiotics are really useful for kids who have a gastroenteritis, in, in other words, an intestinal infection or if they've recently been on an antibiotic that has wiped out some of their intestinal bacteria that's normally there. I don't know if you know this, but we actually have more bacteria and organisms in our intestines than we have cells in our body. Hmm. And what we want to do is nourish the healthy ones. So if we're only adding a prebiotic of one particular type we can do that for a few weeks after an infection, but you don't necessarily need to continue that. What you instead want to do is nourish all the good bacteria by using a prebiotic. Prebiotics are the things that actually feed the good bacteria. And what are the best prebiotics? Those things we call vegetables. hmm So if you're feeding the child vegetables, you're actually giving them fiber and you're giving them the food for their intestinal bacteria to grow and protect their intestinal surface from other infections. So as you do that, you're actually accomplishing a great deal with a very simple tool, Mm -hmm. fruits and vegetables and beans as well. Because they also have good fiber.
1: Whole grains would work as well, yeah?
0: Whole grains work, but not as well as vegetables, believe it or not.
1: So a diet that contains vegetables and fruits and beans and whole grains, all of that's going to help feed that microbiome for for good gut health. Correct. And now what do you think about processed food?
0: Tricky question. So the reason that you're asking it is that they've gotten sort of a bad press. And justifiably so for some of them. In other words, the more processed the food is, the less nutrient dense it is. In other words, it has less nutrients and often more things to keep it with a longer shelf life so it'll sell well in the store. The less processed it is, you're going to be healthier. What I try to tell parents is to try and shop the perimeter of the grocery store. If you think about what's sold in the grocery store, all the good stuff is on the outside. It's all the meats, the vegetables, the fruits, the um, dairy products, all of that is there, and it's on the outside. What's in the shelves on the middle are all the more processed foods. So what's healthier, a potato or the potato chip? All right. What's healthier? An orange or orange soda or an orange cake? It's fairly obvious. So what you want to do is stay away from those, particularly when there are artificial emulsifiers there, because those emulsifiers can be a problem in terms of uh, working against the mucus layer that's with the bacteria in the intestine to protect the intestinal tract.
1: All right, so keep it clean. Although there are plenty of foods that are in those center aisles, like canned beans, canned tomatoes, you know, soups. And you just have to read labels and, and find ones that are not highly processed.
0: Not only not highly processed, but they don't have extra sugar. Right, and salt. or salt. Right, exactly. Right. Those are the things that you want to look. It's this idea of, as you were saying earlier, looking at the food label. Right. Knowing what you're buying. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, let's uh, let's talk about the new dietary guidelines. So for the first time since 1980, when we've had dietary guidelines, they have included the age group from birth to 24 months. So f- us nutritionists, we were thrilled to see them address it. How did you feel about it, and, and did anything surprise you?
0: So what the guidelines do is they really set a scientific basis for programmers institutions and everything that is within the federal mandate and elsewhere to to set up policies for like school lunch programs and other programs where we're providing nutrients for the kids the problem is that not a lot of consumers pay attention to it mm. And that's been the long-standing problem. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, the NHANES, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Study, shows that 56% of kids and teens have a poor diet. But it's not just the kids alone. I want to remind everyone that of, of Americans, nearly 90% eat less than their recommended vegetables. 81%... Right eat less than their recommended fruits, and 98% eat less than their recommended whole grains. So we have to move those guidelines into practice so that people take um, uh, those guidelines into a mindful state when they're consuming them and when they're in the grocery store purchasing them.
1: That's right, because it starts in the grocery store because parents are buying some of the stuff that that kids are eating instead of. If if they had more options at home of fruits and vegetables and the whole grains, that's what they'd eat. And then, of course, parents have to be the role models. So it it takes a village. That's exactly
0: right. Mm -hmm. It does take those parents to be the role models. And they need to remember that when they're sitting on the couch at night consuming a soda— and eating and chips, so <laughs> <Right. laughs> their, their kids are watching them. You of course, know? so they're
1: right next to them, enjoying it as well. So it's yes, good so advice.
0: The other part of it that is important is that the guidelines now incorporate the idea of infants and toddlers being where all of this started in the whole lifespan, um, and that was that was a good part of the guidelines. What they've done really is just restated what we've said for years. Mm-hmm. That is, again, when possible, babies should be breastfed. When If they're not able to be breastfed, then a good infant formula should be used appropriately. And we should avoid juices for children under a year of age. Mm-hmm. And then when we do get them older, we want to keep them on a healthy diet, where we don't worry about a specific food so much as the entire pattern of eating and where we try to eventually limit the saturated fat after they've started growing. Early on, we want that saturated fat in those first few months of um, toddlerhood as well as during infancy so that they can gain and grow and get the the nutrients that they need in order to spur their growth on for their lifetime.
1: Yeah, it's great. I hope people go to the dietary guidelines and look at some of those plate examples and learn a little bit more. All right, so let's move to Allergens, um, It's there's so many peanut-free settings and uh, people who are staying away from peanuts because they're afraid of the allergies. But a recent study, not so recent, maybe in the last couple of years, showed that early introduction can potentially mitigate the allergy. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about peanut allergies and then also, you know, milk allergies. So let's start with peanuts.
0: So what happened is... The researchers originally in London looked at the fact that in the Western world we were having increasing peanut allergies, whereas Israel and China had minimal uh, peanut allergy. And the reason why was they were actually introducing it very early in the kids' diets. So a study was done that showed that if we too... Introduced that before six months of age, we could actually prevent some of the peanut allergies or at least have the potential to, and particularly in families where there were food allergies already existing. So what we now try to do is use early peanut introduction and early egg introduction as well, very different than what we did in the past and get those into the diets early. So in breastfeeding infants, as well as in formula-fed infants, you can actually interrupt that, that path towards peanut allergy and other allergens by beginning earlier.
1: So do parents need to do this in the presence of their physicians, or can uh, they—we use bombas with our grandchildren, and they love them. They're these soft things that are smushable uh, um, that introduces peanut powder, and eggs, of course, are easy. But if you come from a family of allergies, should this be done um, with some sort of medical supervision, or is it safe to try
0: at home? Usually it's safe for most families to try at home. Now. If there is severe peanut allergies in there, you may want to consult your pediatrician or even an allergist if you're already involved with someone. Um, The the way that we do it is that we introduce, as I said before, vegetables first, then I start fruits. And then as soon as the kids are chewing and able to um, basically gum it to death, I start them on bombas or similar peanut protein products to get that peanut protein into their diet, generally about five and a half, six months. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And then as soon as we do that and they're taking it, then we begin the other proteins like eggs, like flakes of fish, like um, ground meats and shaved uh, poultry. But staying away from the high-sodium um, deli meats that are out there. We don't want the, the infants to get that.
1: Yeah, no hot dogs. <laughs> well, uh, Stan, so what's the difference between an allergy and an intolerance?
0: Good question. So sometimes that gets very confused, for particularly for parents. If you think about milk as a good example, an allergy to milk is an allergy to the protein that's in the milk. So that that protein is what creates allergies in every case. But a lot of people are lactose intolerant. Not infants, by the way. Lactose intolerance doesn't develop until three to seven years of age Hmm. for most infants. But that lactose is the sugar that's in milk and they don't have the ability to break that down and digest it and then absorb it. So instead, it goes downstream into the lower intestine where it um, is broken down by the bacteria down lower, and it can't be absorbed, and instead it forms gases and, um, that then cause bloating, discomfort, and gas as well as potentially some diarrhea with the water that's formed as well. So if you think about that as a sort of metaphor for all the different kinds of allergies versus intolerances, you can always remember that allergies are early, right after they eat. It's not hours later. It takes only a fraction of a small amount. I once had a child in my office literally put his hand in milk that had spilled on a table and then licked it and then immediately started vomiting because he wow. actually had that kind of an allergy.
1: So allergies are to protein, they occur immediately, and intolerances take a little bit longer. And there's probably uh, variations in intolerance. You might be someone who could drink a glass of milk with your meal and be fine, but if you had that glass of milk on an empty stomach, you might have some reaction.
0: True. So there's two parts of that. One is it's volume-related. So if you only have a little tiny bit, you may be fine. But if you're having more, that's when you start to have more reaction. And it isn't necessarily immediate. In fact, it usually occurs hours later when all of that food travels down the intestinal tract into the large intestine.
1: Okay. So how about, you know, these routine illnesses? I think there are a lot of parents who are not sure, you know, when kids have stomach aches and diarrhea and vomiting. When is it a sign of something more serious that you should see a doctor? And when is it okay to use the BRAT diet if you still use that, which is bananas, rice, applesauce, and toast in my day, and an electrolyte solution or some Tylenol? like How do parents know what those red flags are that when you need to go see the doctor and when it's just routine kinds of illnesses that can be handled at home?
0: So when we're talking about particularly intestinal problems, with vomiting or diarrhea you know that if it's accompanied by a fever it's usually a virus and that they'll usually get over that within one two or three days sometimes as long as five it's significant when there's so much vomiting that they can't keep anything down if they're merely having diarrhea you actually want that diarrhea in the beginning to help them evacuate the virus or bacteria that may be causing it. But when that gets to the point that they're also having vomiting with it, or they're having a high fever because um, of the virus, and it's going up to 104 or 105, and they can't um, urinate enough um, to flush things out, then you know that you've got a problem. So again, it's high fever with dehydration, is when you're vomiting to the extent that you're not able to keep anything down, even if you're just giving it an ounce or two at a time. Or um, when they are just flat-out lethargic, because then it can be, and lethargic meaning just laying around, because they can't, uh, you can't then just assume that it's a virus alone that's attacking their intestinal tract. It may be something more significant.
1: How about weight loss? If you see weight loss in your child, should that be a red flag or an alarm?
0: So weight loss doesn't usually occur immediately unless you're just losing water weight very quickly. What you really want to do is see that they're urinating well, that that urine is nice and clear, not a concentrated yellow, Mm -hmm. because that means that they're not getting enough fluid But when it's the other caveat as well is that if this is just lasting a few days, it's not usually something that needs to see the physician. It's when it's ongoing. And if it's ongoing, you'll often see that weight loss with them or their appetite flagging.
1: So kids who are who go on food jags or they're picky eaters. Um, They might be some of these kids that have the weight loss. How do you help kids get over, I'll only eat peanut butter and jelly, or, you know, I only have three foods that I eat. How do you move them past that to get them so that they eat a broader diet?
0: First of all, know that a lot of two- and three-year-olds go through food jags and that they quickly get over them. So I don't try to fight them on a continuous basis on, on that. It's usually go with them and find some things that they'll eat. But there's a couple tricks again. One that we already spoke about, which is where you don't let them drink anything for at least an hour before a meal, and you don't give them anything to drink at the beginning of a meal. You wait until afterwards so that they're really hungry when they're coming to the table and when they're at the table. Two is for parents, it's often best if it's a younger child to feed them off your own plate, meaning kids are much more interested in what their parents are eating hmm. than what they have on their own plate. So if you want them to eat those green beans or you want them to eat those carrots or uh, even little pieces of meat, put it on your plate first and only give them a few pieces at a time because if you give them a large portion, it often becomes a game. Yeah, overwhelms them too. <laughs> Exactly.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's great. And how about multivitamins? So um, most kids don't have a great diet. You gave us the statistics. Most of us don't have great diets. But do you routinely advocate that um, kids should take multivitamins every day?
0: Not routinely. It's, again, I look at their diet and I try to talk to the parents about ways to improving their diet first, but if they don't have a good diet, then I usually say, let's give them a multivitamin because um, we may not getting, be getting the nutrients they need. This is particularly true that with kids who have uh, developmental problems, who may have autism, who may have other issues going along at the same time and underlying their problems with eating.
1: That's great. It's sort of nutritional insurance, but certainly better to get all of the nutritional goodness from foods. Correct. Sure. All right, Stan, I could talk to you all day, but my last question for you is around alternative milk. So lots of parents think, and maybe right, right or wrong, that their kids might not be tolerating cow's milk. So a little stomach ache or something that might be related elsewhere, they're, they're all of a sudden, they're removing dairy from the diet, and they're replacing it with these non-dairy milks. So what is your, what is your opinion and concern
0: about that procedure,
1: that, that, that swap?
0: So I think there's several issues there. One is that the reason that they're on the milk is really because it's nutritious in terms of the protein, in terms of the calcium, in terms of the phosphorus, um, and also the vitamin A and D that are added um, to make sure that they, they're getting those vitamins as well. So what you want to do is recognize that if you're just giving them water instead or, or sugar-sweetened beverages, you're not really doing them a favor. You really have to get something that replaces those sources of protein uh, and the calcium and the phosphorus in particular, as as well as the vitamin D. That can often be through one of the alternative milks, but but as you say, there is a problem. And the problem is is that the nut milks, like almond milks, don't even compete, nor does oat milk. If for example, a glass of milk, cow's milk, has 120 to 160 calories in every glass, and it has 8 grams of protein. Soy milk and pea protein milk, milk that's made out of peas, basically, have nearly the same protein content. All, uh, nut milks, almond milk, has only 1 gram of protein, and all that calories that come from um, the protein and the fat are lost so that all the the um, calories in uh, the nut milks are much reduced and they're all from sugars. So you're not getting any of the nutrients that the kids really need other than the vitamin D and calcium. What you want to do is really really think about those choices and to find the ones that have higher nutritional content.
1: Right. Like the soy-based ones typically are are comparable. And then they do add the, usually have added vitamin D, but you really have to be a label reader in order to determine this. But I think it's an important point because kids need the protein, they need the calories that we want to make sure they're getting the right kinds of calories. Well, Dr. Stan, thank you so much for for enlightening us today. Uh, I want to remind all the listeners to go to Nutrition for Kids, where there's a wealth of information that you, know, you can search for and, and get your, your questions answered. And I really appreciate your time today.
0: It's been a pleasure and a privilege.
1: Thanks, Stan.
0: Thank you for listening to the True Health Revealed podcast. We appreciate your time and hope you'll join us again. For more information on today's episode and to subscribe to future podcasts, please visit truehealthinitiative.org. And to help us continue the fight against fake facts, please consider donating to our nonprofit, True Health Initiative.